Uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you and praise you for the wonderful good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and all that this means for his people, those in him, those trusting in him. And we thank you that his resurrection fills us with hope, not just for this life, but indeed forever and ever. And we pray, Father, that as we focus on these things this morning, that you would give gracious help to me and to each one of us, that our hearts would rejoice and be filled with hope as we consider Christ, who is both crucified and risen, and who is alive forevermore. Our Father, we pray these things in his precious and glorious name. Amen. So on this Easter Sunday, we're coming to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to focus this morning on those verses we read earlier on, verses 50 and following. So if possible, please do have those verses out of you. This chapter really is the greatest chapter in the whole Bible in terms of teaching us the doctrine of resurrection. It is a, a very long chapter, it's a, a very detailed chapter, but if I could try and sum the whole thing up just in one statement, uh, this would be my attempt at it. Paul is saying to us here in 1 Corinthians 15 that the historical fact of Christ's resurrection establishes the future hope of our resurrection. The historical fact of Christ's resurrection establishes the future hope of our resurrection. And so in other words, Paul is saying that there are actually two different resurrection days. There was the, the first Easter, which took place about 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ rose from the dead physically. And that's what we often think about at this time of year, isn't it? The Easter story, that early Sunday morning when those women went to the tomb and they found the stone was rolled away and they saw that the body of Jesus was no longer there. And then those subsequent encounters with this risen Lord Jesus, seeing him in the garden, meeting him in the upper room, having breakfast with him by the, the shore of Lake Galilee, speaking with him on the road to Emmaus, and so forth. That's what we normally focus on, isn't it? At this time of year, the historical fact of Christ's resurrection. And yet you see in 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul is saying to us is that at some point in the future, there is going to be what we might call the second Easter. There's going to be another resurrection day when all of Christ's people will be raised from the dead physically, just like Jesus was. That is our future hope. And what Paul is teaching us in this great chapter is that these two Easters, the first Easter and the second Easter, 
They are tied inextricably together. You cannot have one without having the other. And you cannot understand one without understanding the other. And you've never really understood the first Easter until you've understood how it connects with the second Easter. And these two Easters, these two resurrection days, are, are separated in time by at least 2,000 years. And yet Paul is saying they are bound inextricably together. And notice how Paul makes that connection for us, most clearly of all in this chapter, in verses 20 to 23. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. You see the point of the chapter, don't you? Put simply, the historical fact of Christ's resurrection establishes the future hope of our resurrection, all those who belong to Christ. And throughout this great chapter, Paul has been unpacking this wonderful theme. And as we turn to the final section of it this morning, Paul answers two key questions for us about our resurrection at the end of the age. And the first question is, why do we need a resurrection. Why do we need a resurrection? And it's a good question to ask, isn't it? And in fact, it's a question that, that some of the people in Corinth were asking when Paul wrote this letter to them. So just glance back for a moment at verse 12. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So these people had heard about this teaching of the resurrection at the end of the age. All of Christ's people being raised physically from the dead at some point in the future. And they thought, well, is that really true? It sounds a bit far-fetched, doesn't it? And what's more, is it really necessary for, for that to take place? Doesn't the, the body bring with it so many problems? Don't our bodies bring with them so many temptations, so much defilement? Isn't the body the prison of the soul? And so surely what happens when we die is that our body is done with forever. And just our soul goes to be with God and we will live happily ever after. It is a, a very popular notion even today, isn't it? A lot of people, a lot of Christians even, have this idea of eternity. That it will be spending forever and ever as a merely spiritual disembodied being. As it were floating around in heaven. So why do we need a resurrection? Well Paul says in verse 50, I tell you this brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What Paul is saying is this, the eternal kingdom of God will be an imperishable physical 
realm. It's not going to be just a spiritual, ethereal realm. No, it will be an imperishable, physical realm. That's why the Bible often refers to it as the new creation. And it will be every bit as physical, every bit as material as the creation that we see around us today. And yet it will be a perfect, glorious creation. It will be an imperishable world, free from all sin and free from all the effects of sin. And what will it take for people like us to be a part of that eternal kingdom of God, that new creation? And Paul is saying basically that we cannot turn up looking like this. We cannot turn up in that world looking like this. We would stick out like a sore thumb. We would be out of place there. Our flesh and blood, that is in its current mode of existence, cannot inherit the eternal, imperishable kingdom of God. These bodies of ours, these bodies that we travel around in during this life, they just wouldn't fit there. Uh, they're subject to weakness. They're subject to frailty. They're subject to illness and ultimately to death itself. And very simply, that is why we need a resurrection. Our current flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And to be a part of that world, our very bodies must undergo a glorious transformation, elevating them to another mode of existence. We need a resurrection. And that leads us to the second question, which is, of course, what will that be like? Fair enough, Paul. We need a resurrection, and on that second Easter day, as Christians, we will experience this resurrection. But tell us what it will be like. And Paul says to us in verse 51, Behold, behold, I tell you a mystery. Now in the Bible, that word mystery means something that you would never figure out yourself, but yet which has been revealed to us through Jesus. That's what a mystery is in the Bible. You would never figure it out, but Jesus tells us and shows us what it is like. And Paul is going to tell us something of this mystery revealed in Jesus Christ. This mystery of what will happen on the resurrection day, at the end of this age. What will it be like? And there are two parts to Paul's answer. And firstly, he says, we will be changed. We will be changed. And he begins by saying, we shall not all sleep. Sleep here is a, um, a metaphor, a euphemism for, for death, for, for Christians. We will not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And so he's saying, first of all, there will be a generation of Christians who will be alive on earth when resurrection day comes. And that generation of Christians will never have to die. We will not all sleep as Christians. We'll not all die. There's a particular generation, a generation of Christians that will never die. And who knows, maybe that is our generation. Maybe, just maybe, the last ever funeral of a member of this congregation has already taken place. That could be the case. And I very much hope it is. And that is what Paul is saying to us here. We will not all sleep. Not every Christian is going to die. 
But he goes on to say, we shall all be changed. And so it makes no difference ultimately if you're alive or dead when the resurrection day arrives. Because every Christian, alive or dead, will undergo this transforming resurrection. Now the larger catechism, question 87, puts it like this. They that are then found alive shall in a moment be changed. And the self-same bodies of the dead which were laid in the grave, being then again united to their souls forever, shall be raised up, resurrected. Paul says we'll not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And in the next few verses, Paul tells us three things about this change, this transformation that Resurrection Day is going to bring to us. First of all, it will be instantaneous. Or as Paul himself puts it, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. I don't know if you know this, but the eye is the fastest moving part of the human body. And you've probably never noticed this, but your eyeball rotates within its socket at the speed of 900 degrees per second. And that means that if something appears, even unexpectedly, in front of you, then from the moment that that thing appears, your eyes can notice it and then move to look at it within about 300 milliseconds, less than a third of a second. And Paul is saying that this is how sudden, this is how instantaneous the transformation of our bodies will be on resurrection day. The twinkling of an eye. Literally in the Greek, the time that it takes for the eye to jerk from looking at one thing to looking at another thing. About a third of a second, give or take. will be transformed in an instant. And secondly, Paul says this will coincide with the return of Jesus. He says it will take place at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. Now the trumpet of God is what announces the second coming of Jesus. So in a similar passage in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. John Calvin puts it like this, he says, As therefore a commander with the sound of a trumpet summons his army to battle, So Christ, by his far-sounding proclamation, which will be heard throughout the whole world, will summon all the dead. Resurrection Day is the day of Christ's second coming. His glorious appearing in the skies, coming on the clouds of heaven. And thirdly, Paul says, this transformation of our bodies is going to be glorious. Verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And our bodies as they exist now are weak and they are vulnerable. And we know it all from our own experience, don't we? The human body as it now exists and as we now see it is not what it was first created to be. Our bodies get tired. Our bodies get sick. Our bodies sin. Our bodies get old. Eventually our bodies die. They perish. They bear all the hallmarks of life in a fallen creation. They're not fit for life 
in the eternal, imperishable kingdom of God. But on resurrection day, our bodies will undergo this glorious transformation. And of course, they will retain their original identity. And yet they will be gloriously renewed. They will be transformed through resurrection. And earlier on in the the chapter, Paul has likened this to the change that a seed undergoes when it's planted into the ground and then bursts forth at a later date, just as we were thinking with the children earlier on in the service. That seed planted in the ground retains its identity, and yet it's changed, it's elevated to a more glorious level of existence. So Paul says in verse 42, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And what is the glory of that resurrected body? Its glory simply is that it is conformed to the likeness of the already resurrected and glorified Jesus. Remember, that is what Paul is driving at throughout this whole chapter, that the historical fact of Christ's resurrection establishes the future hope of our resurrection. Paul says in Philippians 3, From heaven we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. What a day that will be. Brothers and sisters, we will all be changed. In an instant, at Christ's return, we will be gloriously transformed to be like him. As the Apostle John puts it, when we see him, we will be like him. And even that is not all that Paul has to say about Resurrection Day. And as well as that, he says, on that same day, death will be swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And here Paul is referring to a a particular prophecy of Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 25. I'm going to read a few verses from that chapter and then comment on them just briefly. Isaiah writes, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We've waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You just can't beat Isaiah, can you? And in that prophecy, Isaiah says that death 
death itself is like a big covering. It's like a big veil that overshadows all peoples and all nations. And you can picture it in your mind's eye like a a huge black tablecloth suspended in the sky. And it's casting its shadow over all of the earth. And in this fallen creation, we live constantly under this shadow of death wherever we go. And sometimes we deliberately try and keep it out of our minds. We, we live as if it's not there. Live as if death is, is not real. And sometimes we just forget it's there. And our eyes get accustomed to living in this valley of the shadow of death. And we start telling ourselves, this is normal. Life here as it now exists is just normal. This is just how the world is. But it's not normal. And the Bible screams to us that there is something horribly abnormal about this veil of death that hangs over us, this covering that is cast over all peoples, this veil that is spread over all the nations. And the truth of the matter is that you and I have never seen this creation fully lit up like it was first meant to be. We've only ever seen it in its fallen state. We've only ever seen it in the shadow of death. And now when a loved one gets sick or a friend dies, it reminds us, doesn't it, that this great veil of death hangs over all of us in this creation. It casts its shadow over everything. And Isaiah tells us that a day will one day come when that veil is going to be removed from the creation. And suddenly... Suddenly the light of life will shine throughout the creation like it hasn't shone since Eden. And on resurrection day, death itself will be swallowed up in victory. In Revelation 21, John puts it like this. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What a day that will be. We will be changed and death will be swallowed up in victory. And you see, when you understand this, when it gets into your heart and into your mind, it utterly transforms the way that you face the grim matter of death and mortality, doesn't it? Because it fills you with confidence in the face even of these things. Paul says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me try and illustrate those verses as follows. I want you to imagine that one day this summer, you and a friend, you and a friend are out for a a picnic one day. And you're sitting on the rug together and you're enjoying the sandwiches that you've made. And then a, a big bumblebee huge brute of a thing comes along and starts buzzing around you starts annoying you and it spoils your day because you can't 
put it out of your mind. You, you keep thinking to yourself, sooner or later it's going to sting me. Sooner or later it's going to sting me. But as you watch it, the, the bumblebee goes and, and lands on your friend's arm. And it stings him. And then having stung your friend, that bumblebee then continues to fly around you. And yet now you're not half as troubled by this bumblebee as you once were. And if you think about it, there's two reasons why you're not half as troubled by the bumblebee anymore. Because first of all, you know that bumblebees can only sting once. And this bumblebee has used up its one and only sting on your friend. And secondly, you know that after stinging someone else, bumblebees don't last for very long. A little while, but soon they die. And so as it were, you can now look at that bumblebee, can't you? And you can say to it, well, you might be able to annoy me still, but you cannot really hurt me. And what is more, you won't last for much longer anyway. And you see on a much larger scale, this is what the message of Easter, the message of the cross and the resurrection is all about. And if you're trusting in Jesus, then you have a friend alongside you. And if I can put it in these terms, at the cross, he was stung on your behalf instead of you. All the power of the law's condemnation against your sin, all the guilt of your sin, and the death that you deserve for your sin, it all landed on him at the cross. He took it all on himself. And then three days later, he rose again from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering hell for his people. And because he has done that for you, well, that changes the way you view death, doesn't it? And yes, death can still annoy you a great deal in this life. It can fill you with grief when a loved one dies. It can cause you to fear when you face up to your own mortality. But because Jesus himself died for you and then rose again from the dead, well, you can look death square in the eye and you can say to it, death, you might still be able to annoy me in this life. But you cannot truly hurt me. And what is more, you won't last for much longer anyway. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? It's been used up once and for all on Jesus. Let me ask you, is that the confidence you have in the face of your own death? That because of the fact that Jesus Christ died for you and rose again, and because you're trusting in him, death holds no terror for you anymore. And you can look ahead knowing that whatever life or death throws at you, another resurrection day is coming when you will be changed and death will be swallowed up in victory. Do you see the historical fact of Christ's resurrection establishes the future hope of our resurrection? Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Father, we give to you our praise and our thanksgiving for all that our Lord Jesus has done for us. And we praise you that out of great love for us, he laid down his life for his friends. And he carried our sin to the cross. And he took our condemnation upon himself. And he died the death that we deserve before rising victoriously from the dead. And he was raised imperishable, never to die again. And we thank you this morning that the historical fact of his resurrection has established the future hope of our resurrection. And we look ahead to that day when our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And we pray that that resurrection day will come quickly when we will be changed gloriously and death will be swallowed up in victory. And as we wait for that day, we ask that you would fill us with confidence, even in the face of death. And for those who as yet have never put their trust in Jesus, we pray that you would open their eyes to their need of him. And how apart from Jesus, we are utterly hopeless in the face of death. And so give them faith in him, saving, self-abandoning trust in Jesus so that they too can come to share in Christ's glorious victory over death. And Father, we pray all these things in the Saviour's precious name. Amen.